Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Kramer Says. Kramer Says. Be part of the show at KramerSays.com. Interact on Twitter at KramerSEZ. Now, Kramer Says. Welcome to the show. My name is Kramer. This is the Kramer Says podcast. It is Thursday, August 25th. My special guest today is Sergio de la Pena. Sergio is the, um, well, is a first generation immigrant from Mexico. You're a veteran. You're the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the Department of Defense under Trump. Most recently, you ran for governor in the state of Virginia. You've been married for over 35 years. You have a great family. You've really taken this American dream thing to heart, haven't you? I have. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed to be here. Uh, this is the greatest country on earth. Uh, this is the birthplace of the American experiment that created the American dream, the American dream that I've lived. And it began here in Virginia based on Judeo-Christian principles. And it's created the greatest good for the world in the history of humanity. So I that's, that's, a, that's uh, something that has stuck in my head because there's no other country in the world that does it. You know, one of the, the uniquenesses of my American dream story is that I'm not at all unique. There, right. There's millions and millions and millions of people who live the American dream. And if you've not lived the American dream, you know somebody who has. So no other country in the world in the history of humanity has been able to do that. So, so I am very blessed. Do you, think that, uh, do you think that immigrants cherish the American experience and the American dream and everything? Do you think they cherish it more than some Americans do? I believe they do. And it, I look at it from this perspective. I came from, from Mexico. I was raised in a home with dirt floors, no running water, no electricity, my grandma cooked food on a wood-burning stove. She had a little gas stove that she would use for special occasions, but the day-to-day cooking was done on a, on a wood-burning stove. We had a well, so that was kind of cool, and people used to come from around the neighborhood to get water from the well. <laughs> but that's, that's the way it was. They didn't, they didn't get electricity in the town that I lived in until 1964. I was born in 1955, so that gives you an idea. And, 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 but, you know, the thing is that we, we, we didn't, feel that we were um poor right. uh, because yep. we had we had loving parents and and uh, uh we had a, a a network of friends and relatives that kept us going and my my uh my uncle uh sustained my grandmother by uh doing uh farming uh dirt farming it was it didn't produce very much right. he didn't own the land he was farming so that gives you an idea of the, the different systems that you have in Mexico as to, as to what you have in the United States. And because of that, uh, my dad uh, left Mexico in 1952. He was getting a little hungry. They'd had a <laughs> terrible drought, not unlike what we're having right now. In Texas, and right. So, yeah. In Texas. So if you look at northern Mexico, they're in the same situation as my dad was in back in 1952. So these are cyclical. Uh, that was way before global warming. They had a a serious drought. There was a lake adjacent to the town that we lived in that was about 20 kilometers long and about maybe six or seven kilometers wide. That whole thing dried up. So that gives you an idea of of the level of 
of drought that they had. So, the, so my dad came to the United States as a contract worker, also known at the time in the United States as the Bracero program that produced um, farm workers for the GIs that were coming back from World War II uh, who were taking advantage of going to college and they were leaving the farm. So somebody had to do the work. And right. there was an arrangement made between the government of Mexico and the government of the United States to allow contract workers to come and do a lot of the farm labor. And my dad was part of that. And in 1957, uh, his bosses got tired of dragging him back and forth to El Paso because the contractors only were only for so long. You, right. you went for maybe two months, three months, four months, and then you'd have to go back to Mexico. You had to spend 24 hours in Mexico, and then you had to come back across the border and do it all over again. So sometimes my dad would go visit my mom. Sometimes he'd go right back. Uh, but eventually his, his bosses just decided it's easier if we just get you a green card and we'll sponsor you. So my dad became a U.S. resident in 1957. Uh, about 1960, uh, by this point, he's got three kids, and my mom's in Mexico, and my dad was not enjoying being by himself. So right. he, told his, he told his boss he was going back to Mexico. Just yeah. He was leaving, and uh, they said, well, why don't you bring your family over, and we'll sponsor them as well. So 1961, after a year of paperwork and going back and forth, we came to the United States legally and that's what the process was at the time it wasn't something that you just did overnight you had to have a sponsor you had to have uh the assurances that you were not going to be a a burden on american society so <laughs> if we got sick we were we were out of luck as far as medical care and all that kind of stuff yeah. uh and, and my dad my dad was working 60 70 hours a week um and so he taught us that work ethic when we came to the united states um i started out um, working, uh, picking cotton when I was nine, because dad said, everybody's got everybody's got everybody's got to contribute to the family, to, to the family economics, if you will. And so, uh, my younger brothers, uh, were actually toddlers and, and my mom would come out and pick cotton with us. And she would have a little box for my little brothers to throw into the it was basically babysitting. They would sit on the back of the cotton sack as my mom dragged the, the sack down the cotton rows. <laughs> and that was, that was, that was, uh, it's a family affair. I guess you could call it child abuse and child labor well, and all that kind now. of stuff. They would now, but, but then it was know, called pitching in. You did your part. You had to do your part to make ends meet at that time. And, and, and people are still doing that today. That hasn't changed. The dynamics have changed. Would you right. agree? Oh, absolutely. So, um, one of the things that I learned from picking cotton is it's the only job I've ever had in my life that I just really did not ever learn to appreciate <laughs> or like because the old man would, my dad would go wake us up at, at six o'clock in the morning on Saturdays and Sundays and he'd pull on our toes and say, okay, it's time to go. And when you're doing that in October, late October in New Mexico, it gets a little cool. It was probably in the, in the high thirties, low forties right. when you'd get out there before the sun came up. And then, uh, you know, I, I would pick a little cotton and get inside the cotton sack while the old man was away. <laughs> I'd warm up. Just warm up. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, after a while, the sun would come up and everything was fine. You'd get to work. Uh, but I did five cotton picking seasons and five cotton picking seasons that I'll never forget. Um, it, it, I, have a, I have a piece of a cotton plant hanging in my, uh, a reminder, huh? in my living room as a reminder of what it is to get your fingers poked every day where your fingertips bleed. But I, I learned to appreciate work. 
Well, that's what you ask. Don't you don't you think that that experience though taught you two things? The 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 benefit of hard work, number one, but number two, <clears throat> the um, the fact that you can you can do something you don't want to do, and that can teach you what you never want to do again. And so you work harder not to have to ever do that again. Would you agree? Was that a I, catalyst for you not to do ever do that again? Well, I agree. I, I agree. What I what I learned out of that is my dad had a very simple saying. He said, "El trabajo es la vida," which means work is life. And yep. his his view of life was, "You're not a man if you don't work." And so yep. it was very simple. If you're not a man, you're not worthy. If you're not a man and you're not working, you're wrong. And so that was something that he instilled in us. It didn't matter what work it was. Exactly. You did whatever whatever work you did, you did it to the best of your abilities, and you gave your employer the money that he was paying you to do. So right. my old man never took breaks. Uh, when he was working in a minimum wage job for the county, they would give them, a, I think, a 15-minute smoke break in the morning. You know, right. after four hours, somewhere in between, you get 15 minutes off to smoke and joke. And then in the afternoon, do, 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 do the same thing. And and the old man would get in trouble with his with his working buddies because he wouldn't take his break. He just said he, he thought that was yeah. being lazy and he just right. refused to take the break. And he uh, later had another job that uh, some of the workers took it a little bit more personally and uh, they would get into confrontations about dad not taking his break. So that was that was just the old man. And that's just the way he taught us how to be. My mother, on the other hand, would tell us you're you're not going she she said no quiero burros en mi casa very roughly translating to i don't want any dummies in my house <laughs> uh, the, burro, the burro the burro is an ass a donkey no donkeys in my household so so that was that was the way that i was raised so when, when we came to the states i mean i, I started well, you had expect they had expectations of you it wasn't just you're going to be here and take up space they had expectations for what you had to do to, to be a part of the family, right? No, absolutely. So just to give you an idea. So when I came to the United States, I didn't speak a word of English. Zero, zippo, nada. I flunked the first grade because I speak didn't speak English, English and right. I couldn't see. And in those days, I was put in the back of the classroom. I, the teacher probably looked at me like, I don't know. She Anyway, she stuck me in the back of the classroom. I couldn't see the blackboard. I, I didn't know what was going on. And my mom and dad had taught us that you never argue with the teacher. The teacher is always right. You just keep your mouth shut and you study and you work hard. And if you get in trouble in school, we don't want to, we don't care what, the, what, what you, what the yeah, teacher right. says in you trouble. did. You're right. in trouble because right. the teacher is an adult and you're a kid and they're right and you're wrong. And so that's the way that we were raised. And yeah. after the first go round at the first grade, uh, the <laughs> next teacher looks at me and says, can you see the blackboard? And I said, no, ma'am. I said, so, Okay, what can you see? I said, nothing. And she said, well, let's put you up here in the front of the classroom. So she put me in the front row and then I could see the, the, the chalkboard, but it was, you know, so I, yeah. I could read it. Yeah. And so she said, I'm going to come see your parents this weekend. I'm going like, oh man, that's not good. <laughs> My mom and dad are going to think I did something wrong and they're going to beat me. <laughs> the teacher's but, showing up. I flunked so, last year. Now the teacher's showing up. <laughs> so, so the teacher goes to the house and tells, he said, tell your mom and dad that I'm going to take you into town. I said, okay, fine. They said, okay, fine. Thank you. And so she came back. Uh, when we came back, she um, had gotten me some glasses. And and all of a sudden, it was, I mean, I went through the, the first, I didn't get the, I get. it took me about a week to get the glasses, but we went through the, the eye checkup. And all of a sudden, I remember realizing that 
there was a different world out there where you could actually see clearly. And when I got my glasses and I'm looking around, it was like a whole new world. And so from that point on in the first grade, I was either, I was mostly an A student. I was, you know, I get some occasional Bs. Yeah. Uh, Cs were unsat. My mom and dad were like that. Yeah, my, my, my mom, my dad was kind of like, a, he's in school. Uh, but but my, my mom, if you got a C, you were in trouble. And so yeah. by, by trouble, I mean, uh, we would get punished, meaning yep. smackings, and say, yep. what the hell's wrong with you, yep. you dummy? With, yep. you know, you're, you're being a donkey. You're a jackass in my house. So, so, so anyway, <laughs> so we did pretty well. And, and uh, it, then it became a point of pride uh, because they would give us show tickets. If you, got an, if you were in the A honor roll, they would give you show tickets, meaning you got to go see Walt Disney movies. Oh, wow. uh, and every so we, we used to get our grades every six weeks and every six weeks you get a show ticket now you know you could go see a movie for i don't know at that time it was 35 cents to go see the movie but it was well it was, it's kind of worked well let me ask you so let me ask you this the, the 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 issue we've got today we've got a group of people today sergio that um are upset that they have to work eight hours a day to be able to have an iphone <laughs> right they're upset that they think that they think that working is their slaves they think that they're slaves to the system um if they stopped working and they, they never had to work again and went back to basics to where they had to grow their own food and do the things that we both had to do when we were children. I, my, my family had a garden as long as I can remember. That's what I did during the summer was take care of that garden, right? Um, those, if you stop working, the, the work ethic I think has been killed in America because they've been led to believe that it's, it's um, they're in a system of slavery where they have to work or they can't have anything. Well, if you don't work on the farm, if you don't pick the cotton, if you don't go out and tend the garden, do you eat if you're on the farm and the government's not taking care of you? No. <laughs> they, That's it right you there. Know, there was, the welfare was a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, welfare was around even back then when, you know, because we, we, became residents and I, I i did at the time i didn't realize that you could get welfare as a, right. as a resident instead of a citizen but i remember uh that my dad uh instilled he drilled it in our heads that you are not worthy of chair you you're not worthy of of getting anything as charity you yep. you avoid charity at all costs it, it's it's the last resort and we did exactly. resort to it one time uh, around 1970 uh, if you'll recall the economy, I didn't know at the time. I mean, the old man didn't have a job. He left the right. farm and uh, he didn't have any work, couldn't find work around Roswell, New Mexico. So he went to California to pick fruit. Um, and then about that time, that big earthquake in L.A. hit. And then it kind of went, you know, there were several different earthquakes in that neck of the woods. And and we could get a whole about living there. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't so much dad. My mom freaked out. She says, oh, my goodness, he's going to die, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it took us about a week to be able to get through to him. So we finally got him on the phone, and and uh, mom said, come back. You know, if we're going to starve together, let's do it as a family. So dad came back. And, <laughs> That's a pragmatic and, approach. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so, so, well, so dad comes back. He starts working for the county, and then he tells my brother and I, he says, hey, listen, um, I'm going to be able to provide you a roof over your head. And food on the table, anything else, you're on your own, buddy. And wow. so, so my brother and I started working after school, yeah. or sometimes my brother started working half day during school. <laughs> and uh, they had a program where the government would pay for half of your salary if you went to work for a place. Uh, I, I, you worked at a lumberyard, and they 
Mets, they noticed that he was a really sharp kid and he they used him as a stock. He started out in the in the working out in the yard and then they decided, let's make you a stock boy. He did that very well. And they said, you got a brother? And he said, yeah. So they hired me. Uh, I, I I had to. So they hired admit, you on the basis of your brother. Your brother, if your brother, brother had a bad reputation. You probably wouldn't have been hired. So so no, absolutely not. So so what happens is in those days you had to have be of a certain age to work. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and, and we like kind 14. of, uh, yeah. we kind of, we kind of fiddled that one a little bit. And I, <laughs> they said uh, right there on that on that line where it says this, put that, and right. I did, and I and I was working. Uh, I was I was a yard bird, so I was the yeah. guy that was out there stacking cement and lumber, and and by the time I was seventeen, I got my chauffeur's license. I was driving a two and a half ton truck from Roswell to Carlsbad to Redoso, that neck of the woods in 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 New Mexico. Uh, and they didn't think anything of it. I mean, I used to put a, you know, yep. put the chains, the boomers, tie everything down, and off I'd go on a big truck. And, uh, you know, it's just what you did. And that was for the weekend. So uh, after school, uh, I worked at a welding shop, and I worked for this guy that was a World War II vet. And uh, the principal asked one day uh, in the afternoon if people would be interested in two weeks' worth of work uh, at this welding shop. So I go over there and I uh, I asked him what he wanted to do. He's kind of he, he acted a little grumpy at first, and he says, "I want you to clean up the shop." Um, you think you can do that two weeks? I said, "Oh, yeah, I can do that." So I just, we didn't have a lot of exchanges at the time, uh, so I got busy and I cleaned up the shop in a week. I had everything, you know, cleaned up, sorted out. I had pieces of of steel done by size and so forth. And and he said, uh, and I said, "Well, I'm done." I said, "It's not a." I said, I didn't take me two weeks, well, well, but I'm done. <laughs> didn't take me two weeks, I'm done. I said, what would you like me to do? He said, you want to work for me? I said, yeah. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, just, just sweep the shop. So I became his rent-a-son. He didn't have any kids. Uh, he was, uh, I think he, he wanted somebody to convey his thoughts to. And so generally, I, you know, I, I'd get, I'd leave school. I'd go change, sweep out the shop, get things clean. When I'd get there, he'd leave for coffee, and he'd be gone 40 minutes, 45 minutes, come back, and then we'd work on whatever he was working on, and I'd help him, and then um, that was it. And then we became good friends, and I became his rent-a-son. So it was, uh, awesome. he, he was a well, phenomenal he, guy. Well, you, you, it's interesting, Sergio. You said at the beginning that your story is not unique, and you're, you're so right that what we see time and time again is that immigrants come to this country. Um, and they take full advantage of everything that they've heard about. And because um, it is the land of plenty, if you apply yourself. So yep. you, you come in, you, you've worked through, you've learned how to speak English. Um, and now you've got a choice to make. You join the military. Why was that? Why did you join the military? Well, the military joined me. It's, it's not as it, it's, it's sort of a it's comp, it's not complicated. What happened was. My well, you remember, I we we didn't have anybody in our family that had ever been to college. So my brother graduates from high school in 1972. Remember the Vietnam War still on, kind of toward the tail end, and the army's going to what they call the volunteer force. Uh, and are you guys still citizens talking. are still residents at this point? You're ci no, so, citizens so, or residents? So 1972, my brother is we're all we're all residents at this point. So okay. 1972, my brother says, well, I'm going to join the army and I might as well get my citizenship. So he goes and he gets his citizenship. He goes into the National Guard. He leaves in May and comes back at the end of December. And then he realizes, I don't really like being enlisted. I want to be an officer. I hear that, that it pays better and, and um, 
but but you got to go through through college and and uh, there's this thing called ROTC. So he joins ROTC. He's he's the he's the number one cadet like three out of the four years he was in, and he just loves the army. And so uh, I was working in Oklahoma over the summers. And I thought to go to college, you just showed up and said, here I am, you know, because I got to New Mexico State University and they said, hey, I want to go to school. They said, yeah, you, you got all the qualifications. No problem. I didn't do all the, the prep work. So I thought, right. I, you know, I'll just show up two weeks before. Right. Be ready you know, to go. Be ready to go. And they said, <laughs> uh, no, I said, we'll take you in. We'll take you next semester. I'm going like, I'm not going to sit around for a semester. So we called around. There was a friend of the family who so was one of these community organizer types, and he picks up the phone, calls the registrar at Eastern New Mexico University, and says, hey, Bob, listen, I've got this knucklehead here that didn't, didn't do the proper paperwork. Can you get him in? And he got me in. And so my brother did my, my scheduling for me, and he put down my classes to knock out some of the preliminary requirements, and he put ROTC. And at the time, I had hair down to here. So, oh, my God. You know, so you're not getting in right. No, I, I, he said, uh, I said, I'm not going to join ROTC. What the hell's wrong with you? I said, I don't have any interest in that stuff. <laughs> he says, he said, no, no, you're going to like it. It's fun. Besides, you can take it as a class. You don't even have to cut your hair. I said, okay, fine. Well, you know, let's, let's give it a out. shot. So I gave it a shot, and uh, we did a lot of fun things like orienteering. I was a runner back in those days. Uh, so I could, I could, you know, go from point to point reading a map, uh, and that was kind of fun, and they, they took you around in helicopters and they give you free beer and food and stuff. So that was, that was a nice lure. And so after two years, uh, my brother goes off into the army as a Lieutenant and he, in, and then he goes to airborne and ranger school. And I thought, Oh, that's kind of cool. I don't know what it is, but okay, right. that's fine. At the, at the same time I go to, I go to the university of Iowa. There's a, a recruiter at Eastern New Mexico university who told me that, that Mexicans have an umbilical cord stuck to the taco. And I'm trying to say, okay. <laughs> well, what, but, <laughs> what, what, did, what does that mean? He said, what you've got to, said, maybe, maybe that's why Jill Biden was so con convinced you guys are all yeah, talking. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a taco. So, so anyway, cause I have an umbilical cord tied to me. So I, I asked him, I said, what on earth are you talking about? And he said, look, there's a lot of great schools in the United States, but New Mexico is not where they are. And now, exactly. you know, and I'm going like, well, it's okay. I'm not going to argue with you. He said, we know we've got, we've got schools in the Midwest that are looking for students. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, they'll help you out. You know, they, they give you loans, they give you grants, they give you some work study, a little of this, a little of that. And so here, apply to the University of Iowa. I says, I'll go under the proviso that they take every one of my credits. Shot a letter. Within a month, they said, you're accepted, come. Wow. And so I said, well, that's pretty cool. So I'm off to Iowa, never been outside of New Mexico, Texas, meaning meaning Amarillo and El Paso, and another state, Arizona. I'd been to Phoenix one time. That was my world. So right. I've got my 1970 Chevy packed to the gills, and I'm off to Iowa, never been out in that neck of the woods. I was homesick as hell. And the one thing I noticed about Iowa immediately was it was green. And there were oh, trees yeah. everywhere. That's a big change and, from yeah, yeah, from from New Mexico to Iowa, huge change. And, and so I'm thinking, how the heck do they water all these trees? 
and it's called Call Rain. <laughs> I mean, I, I came from the desert, so I'm kind of okay. That's this is kind of interesting. Why would you waste all that water just to keep stuff yeah, green? <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, I get there, and and the first thing I noticed about Iowa is the winters are brutal. It was oh, yeah. cold, and so uh, after one semester of being homesick, I kind of got over it, and I thought, oh, this is kind of a cool place. And then that's when I realized that. Uh, we truly are a melting pot because I used to, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I grew up in, in, a, in places where you weren't always treated with, with kid gloves. And all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about your ethnicity and they're looking at you kind of cross-eyed going like, oh, whoa. so yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm part, I'm one-tenth Swedish and, and right, exactly. one, 164th Cherokee Indian exactly. and I'm half mm-hmm. Irish and all this other stuff. And I'm going like, oh, okay, but you don't understand. And they, they're going like, no, you're, so you're, you're what? You're Mexican. Okay. Well, that's, that's cool. Uh, but I quickly learned that I was assimilating very quickly. And I remember one time I was talking to one of my classmates. Once all this kind of sifted out, uh, I was a senior and we we're taking a, a literature class and, one of my classmates gets up and he says, you know, in the United States, we're never going to go beyond our social class. The social class you're born into is the one that you're going to keep. Exactly. Yeah. And so he goes on and on. And every, all the, the, the his classmates were saying, yeah, 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 that's right. Yep. And then I thought, no, kind of reminded me of a, of a little dialogue where um, Jim Morrison is doing a concert in California. And he says, I'm a Sagittarius, the wisest of the astrological symbols. And then you hear a little girl in the, in the audience saying, yeah, me too, me too, Jim. And then Jim goes on about, let me tell you what I think about astrology. I think it's a bunch of BS. And then the little girl yells, me too, me too. <laughs> so so after this guy finished giving his little talk, I stood up and I said, listen, I came to this country with Zippo, not a, not a thing. Yeah. And I'm here with you. And I can guarantee you when I leave here, I'm not going to be where I started from. So I don't know what your experience is, but I'm telling you mine, this is it. And this is the greatest country on earth because you can do this kind of stuff. It's not like, like anything in Europe, for example, you know, and, and oh, so. Or, or even and, worse, India, India is true. Uh, is a tr- still a true caste system. If, if you're, well, if you're the, Latin America. Uh, it's the same in Latin America. Really? For the most part, I mean, there's there's exceptions always, and uh, there's right. exceptions everywhere. But to the extent that you can do it so easily in the United States, that's very unique. So anyway, so so I I get into ROTC uh, in Iowa. They say, okay, it's you know you got to make up your mind if you if you go the next two years, you have to you have to sign up and you're going to have to commit to a three year uh, service agreement. And I thought, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I thought it was two. They checked, they jacked it up to three. Fine, that's okay. <laughs> so man, my, you know, my brother's in Germany. I, I, I want to go to Germany. That would be kind of fun. I've never been to Europe. So so they say, okay. So then my junior year, um, they, the, the, the professor of military science, the guy in charge of the ROTC department and his assistant say, you know, we keep sending kids to ranger school and they keep flunking out. So maybe we need to change the criteria because I wasn't a very good cadet. I, you know, cadet you know, ROTC was something I just kind of did right. um, to get an easy B. And so – but I didn't really put my heart and soul into it like some of these other guys did. But I was physically fit. I was, I was out of all of the, the, the cadets, I was the number two guy on the physical fitness test. So they decided we're going to take the top three guys in the physical fitness test and we're going to send those guys to ranger school. 
I said, okay, that's kind of cool. You know, they're going to mess up my summer anyway. I got to go to summer camp because that's a requirement for the army. That's six weeks. And then, you know, ranger school is, you can do it in lieu of, and it's 10 weeks. And then I also applied to to airborne school, jumping out of planes. Um, And to my surprise, I got both. And my idea was I go to airborne school and then I go to summer camp and that would be my summer. And then they say, no, you're getting, you're going to airborne school and then you're going to ranger school. And I thought, I don't know if I want to do that. That's not what I signed up for. I didn't know that's what's going on here. Well, at the time, I didn't know what it was. So, but I thought my brother can do it. I can do it. And so um, I'm off to Fort Benning. And um, much to my surprise, airborne school wasn't that bad. And then I start talking to friends that have gone to ranger school. They just gotten out. And I asked him, is it this bad? He said, is it true that you only sleep on average about five hours a night throughout the entire course? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's about right. So, so is there nights that you don't sleep? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's about right. So you got to carry a backpack through all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, okay. And then people slap you around. Oh, yeah, they, yeah that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. So I finished my last jump. They threw us in the back of a pickup truck, drove us over to Harmony Church, which is ranger school. And then we started. The fun began. As soon as we got there, they told us that we were late. Now we were late because we were taking our last jump. And so you don't get it. You don't they get never, to, the pedals to the metal all the time. Well, you're not there. To, you're not there to debate whether you were late or not. Exactly. You were late. And, and as far as they were concerned, you were late. So, so, so the fun began. And then, uh, you know, in, in my class, we started with 224, 25, something like that. We graduated with 94. Wow. And that was, that's 94 got tapped. And, and then often there's a recycle. So if you mess up a phase, there's three phases. If you mess up a phase, you get right. to stay and repeat that phase. I was fortunate in that I, I was at the very top of the bell-shaped curve. I wasn't a hero. I wasn't a zero. Um, just always people, fit in at the right place at the right time. I, I just kept my mouth shut, did what they yeah. told me, and, and, and uh, did fine. So uh, one of the things that fascinated me about that whole ordeal was uh, how people behave when they're put under pressure. And so that's the whole idea. You know, you're talking about leadership. Yep. Uh, I learned at that time that leadership is making people do what they don't want to do yeah. or what they think, they, the, the, what they, they don't want to do or what, don't, what they don't think they can do. Right. So it was a very simple idea about leadership. And at the time we had, you know, you had to be a little bit rougher because the people that were staying in and the people that were getting thrown out were in a period of transition, which was challenging. <laughs> so, so from that, I learned how to be a soldier. I, yeah. When I came back to ROTC, I was a much better cadet. I thought, oh, this is for real. Yeah. Uh, the Army is for real. And I had just been through one of the best leadership schools that the Army had to offer. And I'm a cadet. And I was the only guy in the Corps of Cadets at the University of Iowa that had both a Ranger tab and jump, jump wings, which uh, for a cadet, that's pretty cool. And when you're a lieutenant and you show up, the first right. day uh, of service in the army, and you've got both of those little badges. That's pretty yep. cool. Yep. And yep. so, you're, well, you're already ahead of the curve. You're no longer at the top of the bell curve. You're ahead of the curve now, correct? Right. So, so, so then I'm off to Germany. Uh, well, first I went to Fort Bliss. I I, I went through Air Defense uh, Officer Basic, and so they run you through the wickets. But it was Officer Basic was kind of you know you get up, you go to class at eight o'clock in the morning and you're done by four. So, so I thought, it's wow, job. it's a job. It's, it was a job. Well, it was yep. a job, but it was, 
it was a job that paid a lot of money at the time. I thought, man, I'm rolling the dough. I was making $700 a month. <clears throat> and I thought, <laughs> this is so cool because I can, you know, I can pay, you know, I, I can pay for gas. Yeah. You know, I can buy a Coke whenever I want one, a beer whenever Rolling I want one. I, have, I, got, I got money. And then I'm off to Germany. And I thought I was going to experience homesickness, but it lasted about five minutes, if that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. my brother was there to pick me up. He kind of showed me the ropes. He was about 200 miles away from where I was. I'd see him on weekends from time to time. And he kind of coached me about how to go about being a lieutenant. And at the time, you know, we were, we were fighting – uh, the tail end of the cold war. Yeah. And, um, it was one of these situations where, um, you knew the Soviet union was on the other side. You were on this side. Uh, if you were to go to war, we we're going to fight the eighth combined arms army. I was in the eighth infantry division and we were going to go to war around right there. the town, the town of Fulda. Yeah. And so, um, interestingly, um, I never thought, you know, they kept telling us that Ivan was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And I kept thinking, eh, I don't know about that. I mean, so I, I'm going to go see what Ivan looks like. Right. So in 1980, I went into East Berlin. To get to East Berlin, you can drive or you can fly, but you've got to get special permission to get in. And then if, 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 well, to get into West Berlin, to get into East Berlin, you've got to be in uniform. Really? So in those, you had to be in Class A uniform. So, you, you know, you're all decked out. And so in this case, I drove and I noticed as soon as I crossed from West Germany to East Germany, the wheat went from being, you know, about as high as my waist right. to being about as high as my knees. And really? I thought, and it was full of weeds. And I thought there's something wrong because the two yeah. summers uh, after I graduated, after I graduated high school, I did two summers working in the wheat harvest in Oklahoma. So I got to know wheat and I thought, man, this is this is ugly wheat. Right. Yeah. And so, and then as soon as you cross uh, into East Germany, the Autobahn was full of cracks and not well maintained. The bridges were in sad state of repair. There's hardly any traffic on, uh, on the Autobahn. And then you drive into the border between West Germany and, or East Germany and West Berlin, you know, to get into the city. Mm-hmm. And, and there's Ivan. So Ivan is a guy that takes your paperwork. It was, it was a Russian. Yeah. And so I noticed that Ivan was was about my size, little skinny guy. <laughs> uh, his his shoes have never seen polish. Yep. His belt was all cracked. His uniform didn't fit. And he's trying to see if I could trade something with him. And they told us that was that's verboten. No, don't do that. So yep. going to West Germany or going to I'm sorry, going to West Berlin, and it's a beautiful sprawling city full of activity and so forth. Yep. So the next day we go to Checkpoint Charlie. And we drive into East Berlin, somber, quiet, no gray. traffic, gray, mm-hmm. everything's run down. And I'm thinking this is the this is supposed to be the showcase of the Warsaw Pact. This is supposed to be what the communists are all about. And and it was it was terrible. And so even back then I thought, I don't think Ivan is ten feet tall and bulletproof. And sure enough, in nineteen eighty nine we found out that he wasn't and the yep. wall collapsed and, and so forth. So the whole time I'm picking up these data points and I'm trying to figure out how do they fit within the big scheme of things. And what I learned is that communism doesn't work. No. What communism No matter how is, you try it. It doesn't matter how matter. you try to work it. And this was East Germany. Yep. No, the Germans, you go to West Germany, everything worked. Everything ran on time, everything was kept clean, everything was yep. honky dory. 
Because there was a reason, there was a purpose behind it. Somebody was going to make a dime for keeping those things going, right? Correct. That, that's what a, a buddy of mine who um, worked for the Ford Motor Company said that when he was in the 80s, went into um, uh, East Germany, went to went to the Russia, uh, what was it called? The, um, the, 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 uh, the, what were they called? They called it the block. It was a, not a Russian yeah, so block. The Soviet bloc, the Soviet bloc. Soviet bloc. So the, War a, the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, exactly. So he goes, th he goes through, um, he goes through the Soviet bloc, and he said everywhere it was gray, and even yeah. flowers. The flowers were gray. He says it was the most depressing place he'd ever been. So, I was in Germany from seventy-eight to eighty-one. I mm. came back from ninety-two to ninety-five. In eighty-nine, the wall came down. It's ninety-two when I went back. I went back to Fulda. The fence was gone. Remember, there was the, the Iron Curtain was two sets of fences. They were about three meters high, and they had they had anti-personnel mines embedded in the fence. So if yep. you try to jump over the fence, uh, these anti-personnel mines would get you. And there was space far enough where one was going to get you one right, way or the other. Right. And then in between the two fences, there were these tank ditches so that uh, it would slow down uh, an, an armored column. And what I noticed was that all of these things were pretty well-maintained. Because I, I, at one point, I flew over the border with East and West Germany, and mm -hmm. I got to see the fence really well. Well, when I go back in 92, it's gone. But I wanted to take my mom and dad, who would, were visiting, to show them where I had been as a lieutenant. Right. And I thought it was fascinating to go to the positions where the enemy would have been looking at us in Tafulda. And um, I went to Dresden. The place was still a mess. They had these piles of stone where buildings had one ex once existed, and in front of it, they would have a sign that said, this is, this is what the Americans did to the Germans in World War II, but they hadn't reconstructed any of that. As soon mm -hmm. as the wall collapsed, they started building everything back up. If you go to Dresden now, the buildings that were there have been mm -hmm. reconstructed to their original form, and, and it's, it's a You mean the buildings city. that were torn down to make, the, to, to make the ditch or make the wall, they built those buildings back? No, no, it had nothing to do with that. So okay. it, it, remember in Dresden, we firebombed Dresden. Right. We, the Allies, firebombed right. Dresden. Oh, okay. It was okay. mostly the, the, the well, it was, it was the Brits, but we, yep. we, we participated in that, and there were like 40,000 civilians killed. Right. And so um, the city was destroyed. Right. They never re they never reconstructed the city. If you go to Nuremberg also, this is mm -hmm. in West Germany. Mm -hmm. When I was there in 81, the whole thing was reconstructed. It was back to what it was before the war. The old uh, medieval piece of the city was reconstructed to the way it was originally. Now, there's some parts where you had um, housing units that were destroyed and they, they you know, they look like modern housing units. But the old right. parts were reconstructed to their original form. Everything in, in West Germany after World War II got reconstructed. I mean, if you go to, to, to Cologne, the big cathedral, they, they didn't bomb the cathedral, but they bombed all around it. And, and, yeah. and all that was reconstructed, not in East Germany. In Dresden, everything was still left the same, and they just said, it's the Americans that did it. Right. And then I would go by the, the concerns, the installations where the Russians had occupied places that had been part of the, uh, the Wehrmacht under, under Hitler, the, the military installations, we, we, we were in, in German military installations and the Russians were in, in formerly German installations. So we kept our, our barracks clean and neat and orderly. And you go to the East German side and things were a mess. They had like burlap bags for curtains. 
the, oh, the wow. windows are a mess. The gates to the installations were dangling off the hinges. It was, it was. A, well, and the reason for that, the reason for that is because the, the Russian military, the Russian bloc, they were Soviet bloc. They were poor. They, they had to tax their people into oblivion just to be able to get what they didn't have. <laughs> when, when they, you know, if, 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 when I was in Germany, the second go round, if you had a Humvee, you had to stick a tray underneath the engine compartment so that if any oil leaked, it fell into the tray. But yet when the Russians were leaving East Germany and they had tankers full of diesel, they would just open the spigot and let it spill. And so that's the difference in the wow. way that the Russians did business and the way that we did business. The, the Germans had to pay the Russian freight to get their vehicles out of East Germany. Wow. So that just goes to show the the corrupted nature of communists in Eastern Europe. They, they were totally bankrupt. They finally got out and then yep. things changed. But what I took from that was what a mess they had made of the countries that were part of the Warsaw Pact. Yep. I later went to Czechoslovakia. No, it was already the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And, and my wife and my, my, my little boy, who's now 29, uh, drove to the Czech Republic. And we took the back roads because I told my yeah. wife, I said, I want to I wanna check out one of these restaurants. So we pulled into a restaurant. They had no concept of what it was to do business. They had, they had like Coca-Cola and they had the local cola. The local cola tasted not so good. Right. And the Coke was a Coke. And then the food was terrible. Uh, they they had no concept of, of service. They had very little concept of what it was to set up a restaurant. And that was in the, that, that, now that was in, the, in some of these. Well, you don't know what you don't know, right? If you've never lived in a free market, how, no, you don't know what to do because it's not, there's no example of, of what a free market is if you didn't live in one, right? But interestingly enough, these are the small towns. When you right. go into Prague, they went overkill. So we go really? to dinner and they have a guy in, you know, with a bow tie and a little short jacket. And, and I've, I've got my little boy and I've got him in a plastic chair and I've got his little bib and all that kind of stuff, you yeah. know, typical Americans. And we walk into this really nice restaurant and drag the kid in. And look, everybody just kept staring at us like, okay, not, not disapprovingly, but right. this is actually pretty practical. You know, the kid makes a mess. You just wipe it up. Yeah. You know, yep. you fold the little chair back up and you throw it in the, your backpack and off you go. And so the service, the food in Prague was phenomenal. And wow. so we, we went to we went to several of the of the former Soviet bloc countries and, and had a had a blast in the big cities. Like we went to right. Budapest, uh, we went to uh, Brno, we went to uh, Pilsen, all these little towns in, in these different countries. And it, it was amazing to see. The difference now if you go back today right. uh they look like the rest of Europe. Right. well yeah they've westernized well so so when we first talked sergio one of the things that you you said it really it really struck me because my career has been very similar uh in the way that yours has been um my, my parents instilled a um well the the american dream number one and then a hard work ethic a strong work ethic as well um and what i realized is that if you worked hard and you showed up on time and you had a great attitude um, and that's not being a yes man. That's just being, hey, let's get the thing started because the work's got to be done regardless of if you like it or not. It's got to happen, right? Yep. Um, so you you mentioned that you kind of just fell into positions um, with inside the military. You kept climbing because you just kept doing the job right. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that that approach to your life has been 
the guiding light that you are willing to take on a challenge because you don't get anything out of something that's easy. You get the reward out of the challenge. Is that the kind of the way you took I, this? You know, I, I followed, I didn't have a lot of people to mentor me along the way initially mm-hmm. because, you know, I just, right. I didn't know anybody in military service. I didn't know anybody who'd gone to college. I didn't know any of this stuff. I'm just picking it up as I go along. You're but kind of I, following I, in your brother's footsteps anyway. So he's the guide. If there's a guide, it's your brother. He's a guide. And then, mm-hmm. you know, as, as you get into the army and if they see that you're, you're a capable leader, then, then your bosses start giving you tips. And I always, right. I was one of these guys that always took tips from my bosses you know, yep, in, in, in the army, it's called mentoring. So yep. I had mentors along the way that, that showed me the things I needed to do. And I just did things to the best of my abilities, whatever it was that I did. And so uh, I, I ended up going to Saudi Arabia to do a Patriot deployment. I was there right after desert storm. We were there with a the big broom sweeping everything up that had been <laughs> left in a state of disarray. disarray. <laughs> so so uh, I learned, you know, I learned, first of all, I learned to live in Saudi Arabia for six, six, seven months. And that was, is it worse than Texas? Is it worse than the heat in Texas? No, you know what it looks like? Have you ever been to Hobbs, New Mexico? No. If Dahran looks like Hobbs, New Mexico, it's, it's the oil oil country in southeastern New Mexico. Okay. Yeah. I, I, ran, I, ran I know the state, area, yeah. I, I went to the state track meet uh, in Jal, New Mexico. And and the, if you ever look at the southeast corner of New Mexico, it's south of Hobbs. And that whole area reminded me of really? Dahran. Dahran looked just like Hobbs, New Mexico. It was kind of they were short like, meets, back home. like this. Oh yeah, no, I felt at home. I thought, yeah, this is flat dirt. You can fit in here. A lot of dirt. You know, I, I I went from I got there in May and, and in October I saw the first cloud that was maybe you know like like a fist sized cloud up in the sky, and and uh, it was the end of October that the, the high temperatures for the day dropped below a hundred. Oh so my god! It was a warm place. It yeah. was. Uh, but one of the things I learned is you, know, you want to talk about culture shock. That's the one place that I've been in the world that was completely alien to anything that I'd ever seen. If you go from one district to another, mm-hmm. there's a checkpoint, kind of like going across the border. Now, we were in the Army, and we were, we were wearing our uniforms. And it was not a big deal. Right. But if you're a typical Saudi, you, they check your papers when you go from one district to the other. If you go into Mecca and Medina – Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're not a Muslim, you're not getting in. Right, right. Well, how you're do not, you prove that? Is there a card that you have that says I'm a Muslim? How do you prove that you're a Muslim? You, well, you know, you have to show that you're you're a Haji. You, well, typically, if you go there, you're a Haji. You're going there to, okay. you know, on a you're, pilgrimage. You're going there to pray. You're going there. Or, or if you live there, I mean, there's going to be, you're going to have paperwork indicating as such. Right. Uh, and, and in Saudi Arabia, the... Um, you don't practice any other faith. If you're, right. if you, you get one. It's you called one. Islam. Yeah, you get That's one it. choice. You get one choice. So, well, let me ask you. This. So, so you, you, you went into the military. You've climbed through the ranks. Mm-hmm. How did you end up being tapped by Trump to be um, the threat assessment director for Western Hemisphere? How did that? How did you get to that point? Uh, so that was an interesting journey. Again, let me let me first start with this. Uh, anything mm-hmm. I've ever done in the army, anything I've ever done in my career, anything I've ever done in my life, I put it in God's hands and said, yep. you know, Lord, if it's your will, this is what I'd like. And yep. he has, he has given me everything that I've ever asked for. And then some, yep. so that's, you know, so that's that I, I, I mentioned that to somebody about how do I plan my career in the army? I said, well, this is the way I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they go like, uh, you're, it's a lot simpler when somebody else is taking care of it for you, isn't it? <laughs> you're a nut job. I just, no, not really. I mean, you know, I, I put my faith in God and, and that's that's who guides me. 
And so that's just the way that I've done things. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's it. I mean, it's that simple. Well, it seems so, like, and well, I'm going to interrupt real quick. It seems like you follow your passions that I if do. you're interested in something, then you just go down that path. And, um, because I, I, I feel that the work ethic that my parents gave me, um, and, um, just being interested in new things. I think that those two things together are what opens those doors. If you don't, if you don't go knocking on a door, it'll never open. Would you agree? I mean, if, if that's kind of how yeah. I've done. No, absolutely. So here's the simple, here's the simple formula. You don't get to pick your parents. Nope. You know, you're blessed with the parents you get. God gives them to you. That's it. Yeah. I, the, the, I would argue the most, one of the top three, I'll say the top two most important decisions you'll ever make in your life is who you marry. And I married a woman that um, has been my, my lifelong partner and, and, and my buddy and yep. everything else. And because of her, I've been able to reinforce some of these beliefs. And so we decided uh, that our children would be homeschooled, that we would follow, you know, God's yep. teachings yep. Um we we uh, we worked through those and and this is this is what we followed and this is what we believe uh, and I've told my children that my idea of success is being an old man sitting at a Thanksgiving dinner table with all of my children yeah. married happily married yeah. with their families sharing a meal that's success yep. so that's that's sort of that's where I that's where I. That's how I view life. Now, you've got to do things along the way. The way, in answer to your question, the reason I ended up uh, in the Trump administration is about <clears throat> six months before uh, President Trump was elected, I was yelling at the TV set and my wife, I was actually, I was looking at the computer screen because it wasn't a TV, but I'm, I'm looking at things and I'm critical and I'm saying, I really am not a fan of, of Mrs. Clinton. I, I just, this woman is not somebody that I would like to see as president. And I'm going to feel guilty if I don't do something in my own mind. I want to at least feel like I had something to contribute in keeping her from being president. So I joined the Trump campaign. They asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I'm a military guy. I know a lot about military stuff. When you say you, um, joined, when you, say you joined the Trump campaign, was it, it was a local, there's a local. <laughs> no. No, no, you joined the Trump no, no, campaign no. national. No, no. So, so the way it happened was, I I asked a friend of mine. I says, "How do you how do you join it? The, you know, the Trump campaign." And they said, "Well, let me check around." So, I ended up talking to uh, to to uh, Senator Sessions' chief staff, okay. and I thought, "Oh, that's kind of cool." Um, and so, he put me onto somebody else who put me onto somebody else, and then eventually, I, I ended up with a guy that was managing surrogates. So I asked him, I said, so um, am I a surrogate? He said, yeah. I said, well, how do I know I'm a surrogate? <laughs> he said, do you have a list of surrogates? What does that listen to? Oh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put you in our list. So if I say things um, that I'm a surrogate, that's good. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. And so when they asked me what I wanted to do, they didn't want me to do military stuff. They said, well, what we really need is somebody that can do interviews in Spanish and defend candidate Trump in international and national Spanish media. And I thought, oh, okay, let me see the guy. That, <laughs> that's a, that's the guy, a good the guy, point, right? The guy that says not nice things about Mexicans and all this kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and I thought, I said, you know, I know where he's coming from. And so, right. so right. I said, okay, fine, I'll do that. So I did. So I did about 60 interviews in 
in, in Spanish in to, to outlets like uh, Univision, Televisa, um, CNN in Espanol, and, and a whole bunch of others. And so I, I, I was able to uh, at least feel like I had contributed. So then the night of the elections, I did three interviews. Um, and then I thought for a while, I felt pretty certain he was going to win. I was one of these guys that always thought he was going to win. But my wife, my wife told me before he even ran, he says, if Donald Trump runs, he's going to win. And yep. so, and I'm going like, she nailed it. And yep. I, I was not as quick as her to come to that conclusion. But by the time that we got to the election, I thought he's going to win. Yep. And then I, I just for a moment, something kind of said, well, what happens if, if, it, if he doesn't? Because, uh, Charles Krauthammer was saying, yeah, he's lost, blah, 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 blah. Right, right. And then yep. about the time I started getting some doubts, a friend of mine calls me and he says, hey, we're going to win. I said, how do you know? He says, because we're going to win Macomb County in Michigan. Yep. And I said, so what does that mean? He <laughs> says, if we win Macomb County, you win. We, won, we won Michigan. If we yep. won Michigan, that means we won Wisconsin. We won. Yep. And his prediction were spot on. Yep. Because if you'll remember the night before, there was like a DNA helix. Yep. It started out with Hillary Clinton at that like it was a 90% chance that she was going to win. And actually it was something like 82. Well, they said 99 the day before they said she had a 99 to one chance, 99% to 1% chance of her winning. That was the prediction the day before 24 hours before 99%. Well, it was, it was, it was a a lopsided prediction. Yeah. So, so I, I say, okay, uh, I believe you. So then I came home. It was I, he called me about eight thirty. I get home about nine, and then my daughter and I uh, are watching the election results. Yep. She's baking cookies, and so I I noticed that the helix was becoming unlopsided. It was going in the in the, in an opposite direction. Yep. And at nine o'clock, it went fifty fifty, <clears throat> and then by eleven o'clock, it had gone. It had Done. flipped, and yep. then it was just a matter of when they were going to call it. So I stayed up till like two o'clock in the morning waiting for them to call it. And I said, I'm going to bed. He's already won. And so that they called it like a 228 or some, some such thing. I, 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 but I had to teach a class the next day at, at eight o'clock in the morning and I had to be in the class by seven. So that means I had to get up like it. I I ended up getting up at five 30 and I was a happy little clam. I'm going into work. (laughs) They had already declared him the winner. And, and, and I, you know, all I felt was, what a great opportunity. He just yeah. won. And and I felt good about being a part of one. Yeah, yep. being a part of it. Yep. So so I'm I'm I go into my class and if people don't people don't show up to my class. I, I didn't get a quorum until something like nine o'clock in the morning because everybody's in mourning. All of these oh, civil yeah. servants that I was teaching yep. were yep. coming in with their eyes all puffed out and yep. and, and very sad. Long. Not all of them. There were a couple of quiet ones in the corner. They were like, yeah, you <laughs> just smiling. They, they weren't very, they weren't very vocal. So, and I didn't know anything. I was just, okay, fine. I taught my class. My, right. my class was, I was teaching a class on the leadership of change. So I said, what an appropriate topic. And I tried to cheer up everybody. <laughs> and and, and then, like putting salt in the wound. No, I was being, I, mean, I was being sincere. Sort of. Um, so, so about a, a week or two later, I get this cryptic call and it says, hey, how would you like to join your president-elect's landing team? I said, what the heck is wow. that? And I said, I, I don't know what that is. He says, well, we're going to send you some paperwork. Here, just sign it. 
So I signed it. And I said, yeah, I'm interested. So I signed it, signed it. And they sent me one paper and then three papers and then another paper. And they kept calling in between saying, okay. Are you, I said, so what do you want me to do? I says, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you just come to the Pentagon and we'll square you away? So then, then they, they set a date and then they move the date a couple more times. I show up at the Pentagon and I find out that it's the transition team. So I, I just got called out of the blue and I was very, you know, again, right. I didn't even, I wouldn't have even known where to begin exactly to, to be in that process. Yep. Yep. So I've been there. I've been there. That's why I'm, I'm going to jump in real quick, Sergio. Um, the, the reason I, I took you down this path is because mm -hmm. I've been telling people there, there's a group of people in this nation that believe that we're, we're at a, at a breaking point and, and they're talking civil war. And I said, that's not going to happen. It's not, that, that's not going to happen. It's not going to be the revolution. Like it was the way that we got to do this is by getting involved. And the way that you get right. involved is to do exactly what you've been doing, what your career was, what my career was, or has been knocking on a door and saying, yep. Hey, can I help? What can yep. I do? And that leads yep. to all these other things that you're talking about. So you've knocked on doors. Now you're at the Pentagon and and you're shocked to be where you are, correct? I mean, you you, oh, yeah. you expect to end up there. No, I was very, you know. So I so I go. It was the landing team. The first part of it, you don't get paid. So okay, yep. fine. No, I, I and my wife <laughs> just happy said, to be so, here. <laughs> so how much are they going to pay you? And I said they're not. And says, but you're working sixty awesome hours a week. And I said, yeah, but yeah. I said, look, honey, when on earth are you going to have an opportunity to get this civics lesson? Yep. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Let me stick with it. And they yep. said, well, you know, you can do this for so long and then you're going to have to go back to work. And I said, fine. Yep. And so come January inauguration, they said, how would you be? Well, a few weeks before they said, would you like to be part of the beachhead team, which is the transition where you start getting paid? Right. And then, you know, they're trying to yeah. figure out where they're going to put that. you. Yeah, I like the money part, too. <laughs> so, so then so so then I I, uh, I transitioned to the beachhead team. And we were still doing the transition. We were still going around the building, finding out what, you know, what every office does. And our job was to make sure that as people came in, that we briefed them on, on the ins and outs of the Pentagon. And so then in May, uh, I get called in. They said, hey, uh, you're, you're being interviewed by, by the chief of staff uh, of, of the Pentagon. I said, okay, cool. So I go. Uh, and we had a 15-minute conversation. He asked me about golf. I like playing golf. I said, I don't know how to play golf. I've never played golf in my life. And then he said, well, your name is Sergio, isn't it? He says, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't mean I can play then, golf. Yeah. No, I mean shit. <laughs> no, there is a Sergio that does know how to play golf, and I'm not him. And so <laughs> so we, we talked about family, and I walked out of there, and the guy that took me in said, uh, uh, okay, you can leave now. So I called him in the afternoon, and he says, uh, why don't you stop by tomorrow? And I did. And he says, well, how'd you, how'd you think you did? I said, I have no earthly idea. <laughs> he, said, he learned I couldn't play golf. <laughs> he said, well, congratulations. You are the future DASD. You are now the DASD of Western Hemisphere Affairs. And I said, okay, that sounds great. So as it turns out, I've, I'm, a, I'm an Army foreign area officer. I started out in air defense, and then I became a foreign area officer. The Army didn't have to send me to, to learn the language. I already spoke right. it. They didn't have to send me to get a master's because I already had one. Yep. They didn't have to do in-country travel because I'd already traveled all over the hemisphere. And so, poof, I went straight from being um, a just a standard uh, combat arms officer to being the Army Attaché in Venezuela, which was a fantastic job. I loved it. And well, tell, so, us, tell us about that. When you got down there, what did you find? What, was that an eye-opener as well? It was. Um, you know, I, I kind of got the, the lay of the land. 
Um, they told me that, you know, the Venezuelans are going to be a little hard to get along with and all this other stuff. And what happened was my predecessors didn't really engage with them. Yeah. So I, the way I engaged with them is I started crashing their parties. I just show up uninvited and I figured they're not going to kick me out of here. I mean, right. the, the guys that, that, that are hosting the party will probably think some senior officer invited me and they're not going to ask me if, why right. are you here? Exactly. So after a while I started getting a lot of invitations. I became buddies with my Venezuelan counterparts and, and everything worked quite well. And, you know, one of the things that happened while I was there is, um, I was, I noticed that Mr. Chavez was around and he was a thing. <laughs> and so, um, I found out that Mr. Chavez was not a nice person and that he was a communist. And I decided this guy is, this guy's a knucklehead. And, uh, so, but I predicted having, I, I was traveling all over Venezuela and I, and I knew that the guy was getting a lot of steam mm-hmm. and the people that I was working with in the embassy typically didn't leave Caracas and they didn't get around like I did. And I thought, mm, I think Chavez is going to win. And uh, I was right. He won. And I had already indicated that he was not going to be a very good guy. Good guy <laughs> and he did not disappoint. And so <laughs> That is an eloquent way of putting it. He did not disappoint. <laughs> so the reason, you know, this ties into why I ran for governor what what I saw Chavez do, I see happening here in the United States today. Mm-hmm. And so this is the concern that I had is I've seen this before. You know, I've, I've been tracking communists since I was in high school. Right. And then I saw them in Germany. And then I saw them when I was traveling around all over Latin America, teaching our partners on how to confront uh, communists and communist mm-hmm. organizations. And then as, as Adeshe uh, in Venezuela, I noticed that Mr. Chavez kept talking about uh, all sorts of Marxist ideals. He gave me a little lecture once about Mao and the fish and all this kind of silliness. Uh, but he was a very, very charismatic guy. Uh, my interactions with him were kind of interesting. I mean, he was he was very complimentary, and then he'd turn around and trash Americans. So that was just his, his modus operandi. But what I learned is that the way he went about doing what he did is what I see being done in the United States. And I thought this is the greatest country on earth. Example, give me an example of that, what you're seeing today here that you saw there that is a mirror. Okay, let's start with let's start with dividing society. Mm-hmm. Venezuela was the most eclectic country in Latin America. Venezuelans mm-hmm. in, in, in Spanish you have the tu and usted form of you. So you have the respectful and the or, or the more reserved and the less reserved. Mm-hmm. Tu or usted. In Venezuela, everybody was a tu. Everybody's on an informal basis. If from a cab driver would talk to the president of a bank and refer right. to him as tu. Right. That's not done in any other place in Latin America. A Venezuelan can be from, from you know, full-blown African, like from Africa yep, yep. to uh, uh, the, the whitest looks of like whites. He, yeah, looks like he's from it, Ireland. It, yeah. it, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of Venezuelan immigration that came in after World War II, there are a lot of Russians and, yep. and, and people that were escaping what was happening in World War II, Germans, you name it. They, yep. There's this whole conglomeration of people, and they were all one. Yep. And then Chavez started dividing them. Started, Chavez started playing the I'm, the I'm the poor little Indian guy that's being yep. abused by the oligarchs, and he was able to split people by ethnic groups, by economic groups. He was a master at this thing. Yep. And as soon as he took over, the first thing he did was he changed the school curriculum. He's, he, he went after the church. 
Uh, he went after big businesses, but he would he would go. Right, let me let me differentiate between big and big and the 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 ultra big. He went after businesses, the ultra big businesses he partnered with. Exactly. So so he became buddies with the most rich yep. in Venezuela yep. so that he would still be able to take advantage of the networks that they had because he needed them. Right. But little by little, he started nibbling away at this. And then his whole uh, message of inclusivity and so forth was based on what we hear today about equity. It was more right. equity based. Right. And so all of his rhetoric was Marxist in nature and he was he was able to sell that to people because the price of oil kept going up. Right. And while he was taking advantage of that and distributing wealth, he was he would go, okay, 10 for me, one for you, 20 for me, five yep. for you. And so he became very, very wealthy. His family became very wealthy. And his circle of friends became very, very wealthy. And then he would throw some bones over to the people that he'd get on the streets wearing their red caps and red t-shirts going rah, rah, you know, go Mr. President. And yep. he followed the exact same model as what he saw in Fidel Castro, because that was his mentor. Fidel Castro was one of the first people that he visited. And if you ever want to see what Chavez's plan on how he was going to run things is or was, you, you look up on Google, you can go on YouTube and find his, his talk to the University of, of Havana in December of 1994. And he lays out everything that he's going to do. Yep. And he was, and he executed on it. Yep. And this is exactly the same pattern that we're seeing happen today in the United States. Are there, is it, is it ideal? Is it perfectly the same? No, there's, there's a lot of very similar things that are exactly. taking place that you saw in, in what Chavez said to what you see in the execution of things here in the United States. Because so, they're going to do, because they're going to do what works. They, they, they know right. what, they've already tried it and they're going to refine it for the things that didn't work or go as smoothly the first time or the second time, the third time that they've done this, they've refined those. So it doesn't look exactly the same. But at the end of it, the end state of what they want is more control. Yeah. You want to weaken any resistance you want to make the society docile and you want to gain that control what, by whatever means you can come up with, but whatever means are tolerable or those that you can at least somewhat control. And, and that's the way that Chavez was able to convert Venezuela from one of the most prosperous countries in this hemisphere to what it is today. And the same thing happened to Cuba. And, and, the well, same thing happened to Nicaragua. So did the people did the people do the same thing there where they jumped in and helped destroy the country by dividing it by saying that were, were you hearing the exact same arguments there that you're hearing here now for for equity and race and, and and all the other issues that the left is pushing right now were you was that happening there as well Yes so so the way that Chavez would play it up was you have to find an enemy you have to find a crisis the crisis in Venezuela was the the he called it the corruptocracy, the corrupt system that existed. And so he was saying Venezuela is a rich country and only these oligarchs are making out and the rest of you aren't getting anything. Sounds familiar. And so he was able to sell that idea. Right. And, and people came out to the streets. Now, was Venezuela that bad off? Not really. But by his determination and by saying, I'm going to give you a lot more. I'm going to give you something for nothing. 
And he was very convincing than the way that he went about it because, you know, I feel um, like you do. I came from where you came, the whole thing. And so if you follow that logical pattern, what it does is it eventually gets enough people into the streets where he creates the conditions whereby he can win. And the other thing is he was very good in his campaigning to play off as I am going to make this a very clean system. I'm going to eliminate corruption. I'm going to make things much more equitable. And I was an observer at his elections. I was there for his primary and his runoff. And both of them were very clean. And he, he won because he was very good at getting out throughout Venezuela. I saw these rickety old trucks with speakers on top, going through these little tiny towns, espousing the virtues of El Comandante. By the way, you know, he he played out this business about being an airborne trooper. He didn't like to jump. He was he was he was <laughs> and he didn't re- he didn't really go into the airborne forces until he was a major. He was before that he was in armor, he was tanks. Right, right. But because it's cool to wear the red beret and 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 do all this false bravado, uh it was it, that was his mantra. And the other thing that you knew about him as far as actually applying his leadership skills, he had one city to take down. It was Caracas. Yep. yep. He had three. Yep. He had three targets. He had the presidential palace. He had the air base in, in the middle of the city, and he had the the presidential residence. He didn't take down any of them. Yep. And he didn't take down the the key target, which was Miraflores. Their combined White House slash, uh, I guess it's kind of like sort of the White House. He was in a building that was about a kilometer away on top of the hill. It was the old Ministry of Defense. It's now a museum, and he was directing combat operations as he was really? attacking as he was attacking uh, Miraflores. Uh, but he wasn't down there directing his troops to take the thing properly. And at the end of it all, this is this is this thing some chutzpah. He did he did not take down his targets. Some of his buddies, like the guy that took down the city yeah. um, of Maracaibo, this guy did it without firing a shot. He, I met, I met the guy. He was a, he was a hoot and a half. He was, he was one of the, <laughs> he ended up being the governor of that state later, but you know, we, that's a whole nother story, but Chavez didn't take down any of his targets. So when they capture Why him, was it? Was he just incapable of leadership? He was not a very good leader. He wasn't a very good combat leader. He was a good, he was, he was a good demagogue. He was an Obama. He, he was an Obama. He was a great speaker. Well, get uh, you know, Obama wasn't, uh, wasn't attacking, uh, you know, with, with troops on the field. So well, I'm, <laughs> but, I'm talking about, yeah, you know, you've got, but, 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 but Obama was the same kind of deal. He said that he was a leader from behind. He led from behind. Uh, oh no, he was no Chavez was definitely a lead from behind kind yeah. of guy. And yeah. so, so what Chavez does is when they capture him, he says, we have failed for now. And when he goes to jail, he says, yeah, it was my fault. I screwed up. He said, but, but, uh, but, we will come back. And he admitted that he had screwed up and amazingly enough, people fell for it. So he was in jail for a couple of years. And then the president Caldera, who was um, the head of state at the time, basically said, well, you know, Chavez did some dumb things, but you know, he did have, he does, he does have a reason for why he, he stirred things up and he wasn't, he wasn't very condemnatory of Chavez. So that kind of built him up even further, right. and then eventually uh, he gets he gets an exoneration, so he's able to run for office as a convicted felon. 
And so that's how he became a political candidate. And then later he won in a clean election. Then subsequently he had election upon election upon election. The first thing that he did, and again, this is to centralize power, was he created a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution. So he put in there all the stipulations that he yep. wanted to facilitate his ability to stay in office. And yep. so well, that's, that's what they always do. They go so, back to the one document that controls everything and they change it so they can stay in power forever. So, so think about this. If you can, if you can consolidate power, having the executive run roughshod over some of the other ones, let's say, yep. for example, let's stack the Supreme court. Yep. If the president is stacking the Supreme court, does he have some sway over that Supreme court? Right. What Chavez did instead is he created a fourth branch of government. It was called the moral branch. The moral branch was all the audit agencies mm -hmm. in the government put into one. Now, the, the, the mission statement of the moral branch was that you were going to be the overseer and making sure that everybody was playing fair, except you're the guy that's over overviewing over or overseeing what yep. those audit agencies go after. So, if you don't like uh, what the legislative branch is doing, you 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 go after them. Yep. If you don't like the Supreme Court, you change it around. Uh, you find out who's doing something wrong, and of course, it would be dragged out as being corrupt and so forth. And then you also control the electoral council. So that's how he was able to consolidate power, put his people in, and next thing you know, guess what? He's in for a long time. Yeah. The same thing that that that. Uh, Castro had done, and well, not exactly the same thing, but a similar pattern of what Castro right. had done, and then the yeah. same thing that Daniel Ortega had done. Remember, Daniel Ortega got elected in, got elected out. He they didn't get rid of all of his people, and he, when he came back, he says, "Oh, I didn't fix this, this, and this," and so he changed the rules, and now he's still president. And, and so he gets it locked down, right? So this That's is the way that they operate. What they yeah. do is, you you have to first get people excited about. Uh, being in different groups and the different groups are those that you court if you're the head of state because you give them some type of financial support or some type of favors and then you you group them in your favor against a lesser group of people that are against you yep. and then you start changing the mechanisms of government and typically what they'll do is they want to do a constituent assembly by the way when when uh, you see these patterns, they become pretty obvious. In the case of Chile, they've gone to a constituent assembly. As a matter of fact, they're voting on a new constitution in September, <laughs> and we'll see how that thing turns yeah. out. In Colombia, they're talking about doing the same thing. In Peru, Peru is a, is, is a, is, is a mess, but all of these countries have taken a step to the left. And so these guys are all looking at how can we consolidate power so we're the guys that hang around for longer than a, than a well, traditional term. Sergio, let me ask you this, though. Is it, any, is it surprising that these, that these South American nations are, are turning left when the, the U.S. has made a huge left turn in the last several years? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting dynamic. Um, people don't realize. Do you remember, have, have you ever seen uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, oh yeah, classic. So, so remember the part of the movie where uh, George Bailey is is reminiscing about, you know, I'm I'm going to jump off the bridge, and then yeah. and then the angel says, "Look at what's going to happen if you weren't around." Yeah, and and things go to hell in a handbasket. That's that's kind of what's happening in Latin America. 
yeah. if if you don't show U.S. leadership, and and U.S. leadership is a tricky thing in this hemisphere because we're always accused of being um, colonizers, a, a colonial <laughs> power that's going to take advantage and blah 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 blah. But at the end of the day, we are those that make sure that the high seas are navigable to traffic that, you know, we do all these things that, that allow free trade to take place. We help our partners establish security in their own countries and so forth. If you're not there to promote, if you're not there to facilitate, if you're not there to lead in a collaborative way, things go in a different direction because people start listening to demagogues. They start listening to, um, the Pied Piper, uh, they, well, they start they, listening to they start listening to people like AOC that promise that they're going to to change things, eradicate things, and they're going to bring you up. They're going to, you know, we're going to re, we're going to ra- rise all ships at the same time. And then you see she goes off with this stupid dress, tax the rich to an event that costs ten thousand dollars <laughs> to get into. She's she she has nothing in common with the constituency anymore. Exactly. She's and the, if you and and if you look at any of the Latin American countries that have socialists as their presidents. Uh, if you dig around a bit, you'll find that they do pretty well on a very small salary they have as head of yeah. state. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, in the case of Chavez, the guy was worth billions of dollars. His yeah. daughter's worth billions of dollars today. His yeah. children are too. And so are his cronies. Yeah. And so so these are the things that, that you look at and how does this relate to what's happening in the United States? Right. When you start weakening the rule of law, when you start weakening the institutions, you're going to have bad outcomes. For example, it used to be that the United States was the quintessential example of how you conduct fair and free elections. Yep. Can you make a case now to a Latin American country, follow the U.S. example on elections no. when it takes us months no. to come up with an outcome? No. When we're the ones that taught the world, well, that's not true. I mean, we, there's a lot of them that had good good electoral Right. Um, well, what place, we brought but, was consistency to it. Is that we oh, came in, yeah, and over oversaw just to make sure that it, it was like a like an ISO. What it was an ISO nine nine thousand one. Here's the process that you go through to have a, a transparent and free election. Correct. And that's what we did around the world, and exactly, and we failed to do and, it here. And so, when you can't come up with an outcome by the end of the evening, okay. there's something wrong. It's yep. very simple to have that outcome if you have paper ballots. Yep. If you have verified identifications cards or eligibility to vote systems in place, you can know the answer to elections within hours yep. of the election. Let me just give you some examples. In Peru, they knew within two or three hours who was going to win. In Chile, it was the same thing. In Colombia, it was the same thing. All of these before midnight in France. Yep. And and the common denominator is you have systems where you have paper ballots, you you don't have these these uh, mail-in ballots and so forth because this, the level of scrutiny that right. you have over those is not the same as if you vote in person. Exactly. And if you have paper ballots, it's very difficult to say, well, you got a hanging chat here or there. There is no such thing. Well, when if you, you ran, have paper ballots, you win. When you ran, when you ran in Virginia. There were issues in Virginia in that governor's race. That so night, they were having issues with polling centers not being able to. The machines weren't working, and and the count was off. The count was taking so long. I mean, well, exactly. And and by the way, Virginia, 
just look at Virginia. They changed the voting laws so that we went from a voting day to a voting season. You start voting 45 days before election day. What on earth justifies that? It was COVID. Again, if you want to have the crisis in the United States that kicked this thing off was COVID. Let's use COVID as a pretext. Yep. Now, is that by design? That's a question that needs to be answered. The same thing as what, you know, I, I mentioned previously in Venezuela, the driving crisis was we have a corrupt system. We have a corrupt government. We have to go against that corrupt government. And so you've got to create the crisis. And then from the crisis, you can manipulate it so that you get at least some factors put in place that are going to work in your favor. And once you get those put in place and you start developing those, you go to things that have already been working uh, through the education system where, you know, most, most universities are left wing. You start taking advantage of that. Most universities promote the idea that free market economies are, are the, uh, the death of society. And I mean, they, they come up with all sorts of crazy things in, in, in academic circles, at least they're not, let's just put it this way. They're not very favorable to the free market system. uh, If you go to a standard state university. So all of those things you take advantage of and you say, okay, you get these academics to come out and say, this is bad. This is horrible. Let's not do that anymore. And so this is how these things anchor in. And then you, the, the crisis is going to give you the catalyst to be yep. able to. Well, you make, got everybody's attention. <clears throat> you got everybody's attention. They're paying attention to you. And you say we're, they, they play on fears to make people do certain things. And when they realize that it works, they just keep, you know, it's somebody's lather, rinse, repeat. They keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. They, exactly. It's not nothing new. Um, when we first met, you showed me a graphic that kind of spells everything out. I'm going to get my hands on that, by the way, because I'd like to share that with other people. But okay that it's interesting of how that dynamic breaks out is that it's when you look at it by design, if you're asking, is it by design? It, it could be because yes. you can lay it out in a style that shows they're doing, they used to do this and now they're doing this in all areas. So kind of go through that and explain that. What was the, what was the difference between freedom and tyranny that we're looking at right now? Well, the, that chart that I put together was showing what it shows a, a generalized process I applied it to what I see happening in the United States, but you can adjust that to just about any country. And, and the basis of that was what I saw in Venezuela. And then I started seeing this cycle repeat itself in other countries. And then I saw that we were moving in the same direction or we still are. And, and that's concerning because when you can start attacking one, one branch of the, of the government starts attacking another and nothing is done to protect yep. that branch. For example, yep. a very simple case is what's happening to the uh, Supreme Court. When you can attack Supreme Court justices, when you can go and, and protest in front of their homes, create all sorts of unnecessary yep. noise and create the conditions whereby people that may want to take it a step further, as we saw with the gentleman that wanted to yep. uh, assassinate one of the Supreme Court justices, you've, you've crossed over a line. And when law enforcement doesn't clear these people out when it's clearly a violation of the law. Right. right. Yep. Then you, you've basically intimidated a branch of the government. Yep. And so that's well, and, and what just very happened What just happened this in the last couple of weeks with Trump, the, the DOJ FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. I mean, 
that is unconstitutional as I'll get at. Now, it was legal, and people don't understand the difference between being legal and unconstitutional. They dotted right. all the I's. They crossed all the T's. They did the process of being legal to do what they did. It was still a violation of his rights, and I think that that's what we're going to find. Well, so, exactly. And, so and you, is this just more signs that our government's out of control, like Venezuela? Are we going down that path faster and faster? Two very concerning things happen, and and you've, you've cited one, the way that that they've gone after a president and basically said, we're not, we don't care about executive privilege. I'm the president now. And I'm going to, um, my, my executive authority uh, supersedes your executive privilege. So I can go and look at whatever you, whatever you got. Wow. And that's happening there. Yeah. So that's a concern. But before that you had the major, media platforms or the, the, the major tech platforms censoring the president of the United States. Yep. When you can censor the president of the United States on Twitter, yep. you've, you've crossed the Rubicon yep. because if you can do that to the president of the United States, you can do it to anybody. And I, and I, and I've had this argument and the argument is, well, it's a private company. It can do whatever it wants, <laughs> but there's something wrong when you're censoring the leader of the free world. Right. Well, and, and, and it's and, and, and it happens and, and, and it continues to happen. Sergio, when 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 they say that they're saying that out of ignorance because the phone companies did the exact same thing when the phone system came up, they would do the same kind of censoring. You know, it was a party line back then for a lot of these people. And if Marjorie got on and started talking to Sally about something that, you know, Beth didn't like or John didn't like, then they got booted off of the party line and couldn't be on the system anymore. They were censored. And, and this was the phone company. So they developed what they called common carrier laws to make sure that that couldn't happen anymore. And right. we see that, that you know, the, <laughs> I, I don't know why, I don't know why these, these people are doing what they're, well, I do know why they're doing it. It's power. It's all about power. Mm -hmm. It's about access and control. And I don't understand why to, to get this power, this new group that is fighting for power, they think that to, to have the power uh, and to maintain the power that citizens have to lose their rights. So we've got um, this Klaus Schwab uh, clown with the World Economic Forum. How much of a threat do you think that he is to our system right now? Is he is he making an impact? Is he more dangerous than Soros, for example? Well, anytime that you start looking at globalization and you have people with a lot of money and a lot of influence uh, and they're able to carry a message, it's concerning. Because if you look at the EU, the big concern about the about Great Britain and as being part of the EU is that you had unelected officials in Brussels telling the British people what they could and couldn't do. And so when right. you have unaccountable bureaucrats or you have unaccountable uh, tycoons running the show, it's very concerning. And there's plenty of people with big money uh, and they can go anywhere and, and set up shop wherever they desire. And if you can get enough of these people that manage big uh, corporations that control money, uh, you need to keep an eye on them and, and they need to be held accountable to voters. But if you are part of an international body that yeah. is outside of that group or is, is, is outside the reach of legal systems, then it becomes concerning. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the and questions so, I've been asking. Uh, who, who voted? Who voted for Klaus Schwab? I didn't vote for him. I know you didn't vote for him. Exactly. So who voted? Who put him above? And why are our politicians paying him homage? Why are they licking his boots? What's the purpose? Is it the money? Is it the access to power? What is it? Why are they? Why are so many people bowing down to Klaus Schwab? 
I don't know what his what his personal wealth is, but I'm sure that he's a spokesperson for people that have a lot of money and a lot of influence. And if you can start talking to the CEOs of some of these corporations that manage big, big dollars, uh, you know, some of these these hedge funds and so forth, those people have a lot of influence because they control a lot of money and they can set the conditions whereby uh, monetary exchanges take place. Right. And so uh, it's it's very concerning and it's something that we need to look at because why is it that you have these international organizations and these unnamed bureaucrats or unnamed rich people right. that want to set the standards and set the, the guidelines for how we interact with each other economically? Because if you can control the economy, you can control the power of a nation state. And, you know, one of the things about the United States is that um, we have – you know, if you talk to any communist or any even even authoritarian societies, what they'll tell you is in an authoritarian society, it's about the organization. It's about the group. It's about the society. In the United States, it's about the individual. That's that's a huge difference. Yep. Yep. And then yep. and the other thing that you add to that is you have to have one standard truth. There exactly. is one objective truth. Right. And, and I would argue that that objective truth is based on the Judeo-Christian principles of fair play. Yep. And that's what created the United States. Now, people say, well, you're 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 isolating Judeo-Christian. Well, that's because, the, you know, right. actually, it's it's more Christian than Judeo. If exactly. You really look at it. I mean, <laughs> it was it was it was Christians or believers right. that that wrote the Constitution, that wrote the Declaration of Independence. And so it was based on those biblical principles Right. And so people could say, well, that's not true. Yes, it is true. It is. It is. That's what it, they do. It, it, that's a fact. That, it, and, if you go back and read, if you go back and read what our founding fathers and the people and the supporters around them were writing at that time, it was all about Christianity. And what they wanted, they wanted to ensure that they were able to practice not only free speech, but religion, because they, they knew that free speech is part of religion. You have to be able exactly. to speak freely to, to, to practice your religion, whatever it is. So they knew that all of these things were tied together. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me, Sergio, that um, the people today are looking at the Constitution and looking at our founders as old white guys. And that's this mentality. Well, the average age of our founding fathers was 42 years old. That is right. not old. Right. They, well, um, they weren't all that. They, well, they were white guys. I mean, were they Europeans? Well, that's where the yeah. bulk of immigration that's, to the United States came from. That's like saying, if you're in Latin America, the exactly. people that are colonizing are, are Europeans. Yeah, well, they're, they're Europeans. You know, in a lot of cases, yep. if you're Spanish, the people that were coming over here really looked more like me because yep. they had a lot of Arabic blood because yep. the Moors were in Spain for 800 years. Yep. So they look like the place where they came from. And it's this whole white guy thing is is, is ridiculous. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's European is okay. It's it's so played out because you're right. The I mean, it's 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 like you know. Well, the the Aztecs were the only ones that built uh, the pyramids in South America. Um, Actually, well, go ahead. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of trickiness on. No, they took over the people that had originally built, built exactly. The Olmecs. The Olmecs had built the pyramids, yep. and then you you know you get into the thing. Well, who was there first? Well, they kicked out. You know, they one group kicked out the other and they built on what they had and so forth. And so history is much more complex. Exactly. But, you know, it, it, it's one of these. 
Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is, is that, that that period in time, what, what I started to say, go to that path, is that our founding fathers, the actions that they took when they decided to, when they decided to take this action against the king, um, it was mm -hmm. a serious matter because it was treason. It wasn't just them saying, we, we, we disagree. They knew that their lives were on the line. So with that being said, and what, what just happened at Mar-a-Lago, what we've seen happen over the last two years, um, the ineffectiveness of our government, um, the corruptness of the FBI and the DOJ, DOJ that's become apparent. When we first met, I gave you my opinion that I don't think that the, the elections are going to happen um, in the same way that they've always happened in the past. I think there's going they, the Democrats have to do something to, to throw a wrench, a monkey wrench in things, and that we won't have the elections or they will be completely different, all mail-in, whatever. You have a differing opinion. What is that? Well, I think I think our institutions are a little stronger than that, and and I and I think that for the midterms, uh, we still have to work through the election processes that have been established by the different states that have never truly been questioned, and so uh, there's going to have to be many more of us out there observing the elections. We have to be election officials. We have to be election observers, and we have to be there during the entire process. If yep. in your state you have an election season, you've got to get those people out. And I think that the discontent of the people is going to be palpable. And given the disastrous results of this current administration, uh, I don't think they're going to be able to pull off some of the stuff that they did before. And that'll give us a reprieve because it'll give us enough of an opportunity that if we turn around uh, many of these state governments, we can change the laws back to something more rational and reasonable. So I think that's that's something that, that can happen. I think it will happen. I don't see how you can pull off an electoral victory, especially the House is gone. The yep. Democrats know that they, yep. they've lost the House. Lost it. And I would argue that as soon as people start asking the hard questions in the Senate, uh, let's, let's just look at Pennsylvania. You have a guy that's running for the Senate that that is that makes unintelligible comments that can't even yeah. string two sentences together. No, I understand that well, he has we a stroke. Met, we we, we, we be got running. a president like that. I don't know why we couldn't have a senator from well, Pennsylvania. <laughs> you know, and, and all of these people are supporting these idiotic policies. You know, yeah. we talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, and they talk about how they're reducing the deficit. Notice they never talk about the debt. Debt. And even the deficit is is yeah. wrong. I don't know how they're 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 measuring it, but the debt. Well, they is just going they just the blew it. They said that they uh, Mansion is pissed because they just ended it. They just ended it. Um, you know. So let me ask you this in closing. Um, in closing, what um, what do you see as the biggest threat that the nation is facing? Let's say in the next six months to a year, what do you see as the biggest threat? There's oh my goodness. <laughs> just pick one. Uh, <laughs> Andorra's box. Well, First and foremost is the economy. Right. If, if the economy goes south, if you lose your ability to earn revenue, uh, you weaken everything else. Okay. And and yep. then that's one. And if you're able to make or long term, if you're able to make people much more docile as uh, the Democrats have been attempting to do, um, it doesn't really create the conditions where, whereby you have strong institutions. But right. I think that's a more long-term kind of a thing. The, the, the economy is, is, is really important because if we hit another national emergency, something happens in the world. Let's say, for example, somebody trips up in, in – uh, let me give you one, one easy example. What happens if China invades Taiwan? Yeah. And how are we going to respond to that? 
because you still got the situation with Russia and Ukraine taking place. And then will that motivate others to do other dumb things? Well, it's like exactly what we saw in World War One, World War Two. It was a cascade effect. And so if you have a weak economy and then you go into uh, a national emergency that deals yeah. with a kinetic event, meaning a war, yeah. uh, that is not going to be good. And yeah. so we need to avoid war at all costs because the thing that can most affect a nation state is if you get yourself into a war because now all of a sudden – the economy becomes um, the driving force because if you can't keep a strong economy, you're not going to be able to Maintain afford the war. troops in the field. And if you look at all the great empires, they always got themselves into too many wars and they didn't have enough revenue to be able to support them. So you don't want to get yourself into that situation. And so th these are, and this is a topic for another day, but that that's one of the things that concerns me significantly, especially in our hemisphere that we've been neglecting. And for, those, for those that are, are concerned, that are concerned about what's happening next, what do you say is the best thing for them to do? I've been saying that it's become a part of it. Join in. Don't stand on the sidelines bitching about it. Join in. What's the best way to do it? The best thing to do right now is whatever the rules are that allow you to, to get your people to the ballot box, do it. If it means early voting, go vote early. If it means that you can, you can do same-day registration and vote, convince enough people to do the same thing. If it's legal, then do it. One of the things is that we don't do what they do. Exactly. So whatever is legal, let's do that. Do it. That's, that's, that's first and foremost. And then the next thing is make sure you're part of the process. So be an election observer. More importantly, be an election official. official. Because an I'm observer just, just tells the observer or, or the, the observer tells the official, I see an, I see something not, not working here. Right. And in states... It, for example, in Virginia, where the governor is a Republican, that means the person that's in charge of the voting or the, the polling station is going to be of the party of the governor. Yep. Get a lot of those people yep. into place. Yep. Don't don't neglect those. Be part of the process. And we we have a lot to lose. And if we don't get out there in massive numbers, we're not going to do well. And our country is too important to let it go south. And we can solve all these things through elections. The alternative is not a good thing. I agree. I agree. Well, Sergio, I appreciate you dropping in. Our guest today has been Sergio Thank de la Pena. Um, uh, well, I'll have to have you back. This was awesome. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. We will do it again. That is the Kramer Says Podcast. My name is Kramer. We will be back tomorrow or as soon as we can.